Welcome to the Harnessing Happiness podcast. Upbeat vibes generated and transferred to you. Now here's your host, Sarah J. Naylor. Hello and welcome to Harnessing Happiness with myself, Sarah J. Naylor. Thank you as always for stopping by and tuning in and listening to my podcast. It's great to know you're out there and you're listening. Yay! (laughs) Anyway, of course, it's a guest episode today and I have with me the fabulous Liz, who I'm going to hand over to so she can introduce herself because as we know, my guests do a far better job of introducing themselves than I do. So over to you, Liz. Please do introduce yourself to my awesome audience. Good morning. Um, it's lovely to be with you. My name is Liz McDermott. I'm an author, a poet and a writing mentor. And according to my best friend, a badass. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about that bit, especially when I say um, I live in Royal Watton Bassett with my husband, and a range of cuddly toys. But the fact that you channel that, that's absolutely fine because a lot of people wouldn't and they might miss that out. But yes, you've got a really sort of interesting story that I'm delighted that you're going to share with my audience though. So do you want to take that up and we can sort of talk along the way about your background and your story and how you've arrived at where you are now? Because I think, you know, it's so inspiring and it will give other people so many sort of aha moments. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I will start at school, actually. At school, I was good at two things, art and music. Absolutely rubbish at maths. Still am rubbish at maths. And I knew that I wanted to do music. So I very luckily actually did get to music college and I studied harp, piano and singing. Um, Not to be a performer, I wanted to teach. I wasn't particularly confident enough to be a performer and not good enough compared to, you know, the really, really bright sparks out there. So I went into teaching and I went into secondary teaching and it wasn't quite as enjoyable as I thought. (laughs) (laughs) I could never be a teacher. I could never be a teacher. (laughs) And I taught in secondary and I started in Birmingham. I love the kids. I hated some of the other aspects of the stuff. I then moved to Tewkesbury in Gloucestershire and taught for a short time there. And then I went in to become a peripatetic piano teacher where I travelled around teaching piano in schools, which meant I wasn't in the classroom. Right. Okay. You hadn't got that sort of that, that responsibility for hordes of kids and rounding them up. Which I found difficult because if I got angry, you can't swear at them. No. <laughs> it's not normally best practice as much as you want to. <laughs> no, it's not. So I used to find it really hard to pretend to be angry. So I hated that side of it. Anyway, so I worked as an advisory teacher. Then the best thing, and we're talking, well, in the 80s, um, maybe it was the early 80s, actually, we had an arts team in Gloucestershire and I became an advisory teacher. We used to go to schools and it was the most creative time where you could go into schools and they'd say, well, let's do something musical today. And with the whole school, you'd do something. I'm talking about primaries. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it was an amazing time. And all of, you know, the whole team of arts people would go in. So it was incredible. Anyway, I was in education for 34 years. Wow, 34 years. So to say that you didn't enjoy teaching, you you, you stuck it out, Liz. I wasn't actually in the classroom for those 34 years. So latterly, I was um, a school's advisor and an Ofsted inspector. And there were people out there who were making the sign of the cross at the radio or the podcast as I'm saying that I did once have the best comment from a teacher in London and she said I was a cool Ofsted inspector Woo-hoo. now that that is that is some that is some recommendation isn't it because people really don't want Ofsted coming in they're sort of 
panic-stricken at the very thought of it. What made you go into Ofsted reporting then, What just out of curiosity? The Ofsted training was starting up and I'd been working as an advisor and I was a self-employed advisor at that point. Well, I was part-time, not self-employed, part-time at that point. So I filled my other time with part-time work and to be quite honest, it was well paid when it started out. <laughs> I mean, you had to pay to train and the training was incredibly hard. I mean, it was a week and you were locked away with the other people on the course they were watching us all the time to see our behavior how we worked with other people how we gave feedback I mean it was you in you know the fishbowl thing all the time even in the evenings people were worried about saying the wrong things in the evenings and this is my math thing we had to do on the very last day we had to do an actual report for a we had to look through a report and give a feedback. And my group put me on looking at the percentages of all these different things. And I said to them, please don't put me on that. I'm absolutely rubbish at maths. And they go, of course you'll be able to do it. It'll be stupid. And I went, I won't. They didn't believe it. And there were people watching this going on. So I had said this to them. Anyway, it got to the end and we were all giving feedback. And there were two groups of us. We'd been split into two groups. Got to our group and they came around and they said to me, so give your feedback on the, you know, what's this bit, Liz? And I went, um, I'm really sorry I couldn't do it because I couldn't. I said, I did tell the others, I said, I am rubbish at maths. I really couldn't get my head around it. And I'm very sorry that I couldn't do it. I didn't fail. The whole of the room, when I said that, I went, oh, and I didn't fail. And when I got some feedback afterwards, I said it was because I didn't lie. And I had said to the others, and we were supposed to be working as a team. And I had said to the others, this is not my strong point. I am rubbish at maths. No, I won't be able to do this. I mean, I do. I have a real block about maths. They were watching to see how we worked as a team. Well, the rest of the team hadn't supported me. Yeah, that's naughty, isn't it, really? I mean, you, if, if you're putting your hands up to something that you aren't skilled at, it should be sort of spoken through and thought through in more detail. And it's all about pulling to each other's strengths, not sort of trying to put somebody in a position of weakness. And that's why when I did Austin inspections, I would only work with teams that were like that and didn't go into schools because you could refuse to work with teams, obviously. But I wouldn't work with teams where they went in to what I would say was catching schools out. They were trying to support schools by doing the Ofsted inspection, not putting through this horrendous time. So Ofsted, so you obviously did that, got good reports, got through all that training. But what happened? So when did you leave? What made you decide to leave teaching? And what are you doing now? Yeah, I decided to leave it because I was working as a schools advisor for an authority. I had to earn my targets, you know, for my subject and of course it was in a time when literacy and numeracy came in and schools didn't want to be doing the arts so I wasn't hitting my targets I couldn't make schools buy me in and so in the end they put me into doing assessment as well as music and I just didn't go into education to do that and um, so I went into photography I worked on my own from home so I did that for 12 years on the latter years of that I did headshots for people in business, particularly women who hate being photographed. When lockdown came in 2020, I, I'm trying to think how old I was then. No, I was 68. So when lockdown came and I got to the point where I was sick of lugging around all of the equipment. Yes, yes. There's a lot. To, I've just had a photo shoot. There's an awful lot of equipment that you have to lug about, isn't there? And it's quite tiring when you're doing people photography, particularly weddings. I stopped doing weddings in 2016. You know, so anyway, I decided to stop doing that. I'd done a bit of writing. I did some writing when I was in education. I wrote with another girl. We wrote three books for different levels in primary schools for teachers to teach the national curriculum, which had been prescripted by the government. But most primary teachers are not 
specialists in all the subjects they teach. And music's a very hard one because if you're not musical or you don't think you're musical and it's a sound thing and you've got to try and do this do the class, that's really hard. So we wrote this book, but I never thought of myself as an author because it was my work. Yes, yes, because you were, you were writing stuff that was practical, like was a manual that was like a sort of guidebook and what have you, yeah. I have to say that's the only time I've earned lots of money from writing. We've been asked by um, a publisher, an educational publisher, to write it. The book was used the whole of England and Wales and Ireland, so we did earn well with that. Eventually, our publishing company got bought out by another publishing company that had their own music scheme, so ours got squashed. Anyway, so I'd written that. Then when I was a photographer, I wrote a book about headshots and why headshots are important for business people it wasn't for photographers or would-be photographers but you know, sort of explaining why you need to see a picture of yourself now rather than 20 years ago well yes absolutely and I know my photographer talks about this as well it's so important isn't it that people see who you are and you know with things like LinkedIn as well that you have that headshot not something of you standing far away because when you're actually communicating on LinkedIn for example People see your face and they get to know you. And, you know, when you then have meetings with people, you go, that's not you. (laughs) I had an incredible one with that. I went to meet a lady who I'd been talking to on LinkedIn and walked into the room and I was looking around for her. And on her picture, she was probably 40s, blonde hair, curly up on top, quite slim looking, in the room, couldn't see her. And this lady approached me who was well over 50, much more weight, hair sort of going grey. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but she wasn't showing herself. No, not representing herself at all. And it's you've got to be representative of yourself because otherwise there's an incongruence. You know, you've got to be whoever it is you are. You need to show up as yourself. Yeah, you're not being authentic. In business, you've got to be authentic. Yeah. Hence me just having to say literally last week to obviously when we're recording this, I've been on a photo shoot because the last set of photographs I had were taken two years ago during lockdown. I've changed. I've evolved in those two years. I mean, you're still probably seeing somebody because I've still got the same glasses on. (laughs) It's still seeing pretty much the same person. But there's a lot about me that's changed. And that needs to come across in all of my personal branding. I'd written that. And again, that was a book which was business. So I didn't feel like an author. The guy that had published that for me, he was having a competition for a short story anthology. So I wrote a short story which I put in for it. My story got into the anthology and that gave me confidence and it was the first time I'd written fiction. Yes, yes, because I have to say, I mean, I've written a book and done another a chapter within a book collaboration. I will call myself an author because there's so much of me within it, but equally so, when you start to talk about fiction, because as soon as you said fiction, my I went, yeah, I don't know, I'd like to, the stuff I'd like to write, but I wouldn't even know where to start. <laughs> But the point is, you're just saying about that, having written help books or business books, you're still an author. It was just my head because a lot of the people I mentor are writing memoirs or business books, also novels. But, you know, a lot of people write memoirs. So that's just my thinking. But that then got me into writing. I then wrote an autobiography of my husband and I. Now, you see, this is where we need to get to the juicy bit, Liz. Come on. (laughs) Come on, for all of you who've been listening, Liz has got such an interesting story. Come on, let's let's interject. Let's do a Ronnie Corbett and go off at a different angle here. <laughs> and anybody who doesn't know a Ronnie Corbett, Google him because he used to sit in a chair, tell a story and go off at lots of different angles <laughs> before he got to the point. <laughs> I think I must be a reincarnation. Um, so 
I was married for 18 years and then I got divorced. I was 40. My girlfriends loved going clubbing and she loved soul music. So she said, go, come with me. And she was 30. So I went with her. I love the soul music. I kept meeting quite a lot of men younger than me. <laughs> years. Yay. Yay. And eventually I wasn't thinking about settling down again. But then about a year after I'd been divorced, I met the lovely Conrad. And um, I saw him across the dance floor and he has the most beautiful eyes. He's a really good dancer. My girlfriend, when I said to her, oh, he's cute, my girlfriend went and told him about being 18 years, you know. Anyway, he came up to me a bit later and said, would you like a dance? So I said, yes, I don't have a dance. And then he disappeared. So I thought, oh, he obviously thinks I'm too old. I thought he was about 21 (laughs) Anyway, uh, at the end of the evening, he and his cousin, as I found out, were sat together. So my friend says, go and ask him his name. So I walked up to him and asked him his name. Oh, my um, gosh. <laughs> I know. I had quite a bit of rum. Oh, right. Well, that'll help. Yes. Helps. And um, so I asked him his name. He told me. And then I was standing there like an idiot thinking, OK, walk away, walk away. And then he suddenly said, can I have your number? And he said, I'll ring you tomorrow night at five. Now, guys never rang at the time or even got in touch. But the next night at five o'clock, my phone rang. And this is before mobiles, because this was 1993. So he had to go to a phone box because he didn't have a phone. Oh, my gosh, the good old phone box. Keep putting the two pences in. <laughs> he rang me. We had a chat. And we did the thing of how old are you and how old are you? And we both thought we were younger than we were, which was great. And then we arranged that he was coming up the next weekend. We have been together since that night. Um, and we've been together 29 years this year. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. But it's a completely different life because I... Prior to recording this, we we had a meeting ourselves because we'd been introduced and the story that you told me that, you know, your life previously, because you'd obviously had an epiphany, which is why you left your ex-husband and your life up until then was very, very different to the life that you then entered into, wasn't it? Yeah, which is why we wrote our autobiography, because you're probably your listeners are probably thinking, well, that's not very exciting. Just meeting some guy at a club. What's so different? So the reason we wrote it, our book's called Mixed Feelings, because I'm white and I was born in 1952 and my husband Conrad is black of Jamaican descent, born in the UK. He was born in 1964 (laughs) when I was 12. Oh, wow. on paper, we have nothing. We should have nothing in common, apart from the fact, obviously, we like soul music. That's where we were there. He has no qualifications. He finished school at sixteen because he's very dyslexic. Had problems at school, not being a bad kid, but just getting on at school. He comes from a family where most of them aren't married or haven't stayed together for quite some time. Just his family. He lived in a big family when he grew up because his grandparents looked after him along with the other grandchildren. So he lived in. Household. I'm an only child with older parents. And your your upbringing. I mean, you went through sort of school, education, degree, music, and all that. And I mean, I, on paper, I'm middle class. You know, my parents were wealthy, but my mother, because her father owned the house, didn't have a mortgage. Whereas Conrad grew up in flats and different places, you know. So on paper, we, you know, socially, educationally, ethnically, that's hard to say. We probably shouldn't have been together, but that's why we wanted to write the book to say love doesn't care about your age, your ethnicity, anything. And if you are happy with that person and they make you happy, which we do make each other happy, and you you want to go for it, go for it. It's nobody else's business but ours. Exactly. And you, as you, but you you said you, I mean, previously you'd been with your ex husband for for eighteen years, but you'd made a decision to leave. 
after having that was a life-changing experience that you'd had as well wasn't it I had this a cancer scare I had part of my colon removed and it wasn't cancer but they said it would have been had it been left don't think you'll be listening to this but I did think well, basically I mean we'd just lived like brother and sister for years and I just 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 thought I don't want to die without having sex no but you get to the point and you realize it's not you know the life you were living wasn't the life that you were meant to live and it's having those epiphanies and that awakening that's completely changed your the trajectory of your life which is where you how you ended up meeting conrad because you were so open minded to everything me more confidence in myself he supports me in absolutely everything when i said i wanted to give up education where it was a really well-paid job to be a photographer not a well-paid job if you don't get work his attitude was do it if we can't make the money we haven't got kids if we can't make the money then we sell and move into somewhere smaller i mean that support you can't emphasize enough how empowering having somebody in your life supporting you to be the best version of yourself is rather than being in somebody i mean my relationship with my ex-husband i was criticized for everything i couldn't do right for doing wrong and now I'm in a relationship. It's only two years standing, but, you know, it's very much sounds like the one that you've got, Liz. You know, it's like it's it's supportive. It's nurturing. It's encouraging. You know, it's I'm told I look lovely, you know, and, I, you know, and I'm supported and encouraged doing things and trying stuff and getting out there, you know, and it just it's empowering. So, yeah. Sorry. Carry on with your story. <laughs> that That's why we wrote the book, the autobiography, because some people said, well, you two aren't special. You're not famous. And my attitude is, no, we're not, but we have a story. And lots of people have stories. And that's the thing about memoirs and autobiographies. So, you know, people often, when they come and say they want to write a memoir, they'll say, well, I'm not very interesting. And then they tell you your story and you go, good grief, you are. That's amazing. You know? I know. But that's it. And through telling your story, and let's face it, you know, historically before books even became a thing you know we're going back obviously centuries but it was all about telling the story wasn't it and the story is where people get inspiration from and whether it's the spoken word or it's you know it is now obviously written down and people can read it or you can get audio books knowing you're not alone knowing that there are other people that have been through stuff getting inspired by the fact that somebody's been brave enough because so many people are out there happy to squash you down because that's their stuff they squash you down and stop you flowering stop you being who you're to be that means that they haven't got to do any work on themselves whereas actually if they get sort of challenged by you evolving it's easier for them to tell you you're rubbish than to actually do the work to raise themselves up if you like I'm always very happy to talk about stuff I don't mind people knowing things I've done or you know things that I've been through because somebody else might be going Oh, I was in that situation. I was going to launch something called The Happiness Project, but I've actually decided to call it Manifest Midlife Magnificence instead. And I've just been working through sort of the elements of that. And talking about my story, myself, you know, as a masterclass, because actually one of the things that triggered when I was talking to some people about it a couple of days ago was that I used to, by way of example, understand when when I was married, how people would... Yeah, I used to really resonate that how I understood how people could just disappear because they didn't know any other way out of the relationship that they were in. And, you know, in reflection, you sort of think, well, why didn't I at that time realise that obviously I wasn't happy? I'd been manoeuvred away from people and I never had conversations with people about how I felt. And I just got on with life and accepted it because that's my overdone strength, acceptance. <laughs> 
and, and also you get that thing of, you know, better the devil you know than the one you don't know sort of thing. Well, he always told me he was the best thing since sliced bread. But I mean, it wasn't even that because I'd stand my ground within the relationship. But no, I literally knew no different because I wasn't, I'd been manoeuvred and my life was around my work that I would go to and come back from and his family and the handful of friends that we would see together. And I would never have conversations with anybody about anything because, well, you don't talk to people about anything. That's what he told me, but I would do. But there was never anybody to talk to. But yeah, so your your book, so you wrote your book. So we did that book. Then I wrote four books of poetry because my old publisher was very keen on publishing poetry books, anthologies. And I used to write poetry when I was um, at college and I hadn't written any since. So I'd started writing poetry again. And I actually now run an online poetry group once a month where I've got a group of people. It's not a very big group, but it's fine. And we write poems together. And the year before last, we published um, an anthology of the poems that we'd written during the year. And we hope to do the same. It won't be this year. I think it'll be the beginning of next year. So then I started mentoring my best friend is a PR person who's absolutely amazing. Oh, perfect. (laughs) She's incredible. But she's a journalist as well. So she's a writer and she wanted to write her own memoir, which is a bit of a memoir and business book. But she asked me if I'd mentor her, which I thought was a bit weird because I'm saying to her, well, you're a writer. You're trained as a writer. I've never trained at it. I've just grown into it. But having that support, like we've just been talking about, is where it comes to, which is like a coach coaching a coach because, I mean, I can coach myself, but if you're actually working with people that can coach you, yeah. I've been helping her. And then with her, unfortunately, the pandemic got in the way. And so she she was really then focusing on helping all of her clients and other people to be seen during the pandemic. So she stopped us a bit. But during that time, I met the lady who is now my publisher, Helen. I just met her through somebody else for lunch. And after the meeting, she got in touch and asked me, when people send in manuscripts to them to think about publishing with them, they often read them. And some people, they're not ready for being released. They might be too much all over the place. They might have just sort of almost spewed the words out. (laughs) Yes, because they do need editing. You do need to work with somebody that knows what they're doing to bring... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they might have left, left bits out that when mm. I read, I think, well, I want to know about that. But then we don't hear about it again. So I then got some people from them, which was fantastic. So that through lockdown, that was really helpful for me and helped me grow in my confidence because reading other people's writing and then doing your own, you start to think, oh, I shouldn't do it that way. And, and it just helps you grow yourself. And I realise actually that having been in education for all those years, even when I was a photographer, for me, as well as getting lovely pictures of people, it was about helping them to feel good about themselves in front of the camera. One of my big things is I like to try and empower people. So the mentoring does that, you know, so that sort of continues through. I've been doing the mentoring and I'd started writing my first novel. Mm-hmm. Exciting. <laughs> and I started writing that, oh, 2019. I did very much of it in 2020 but I finished it in 2021 and it was published in May this year. Yay! And so what's the novel about? What's the novel about? There are links with age differences. (laughs) It's called He Is Not Worthy. You have to decide who that's going to be when you see the book actually but basically the main female character is called Re. Um, it's a shortened version of Rhiannon or Rihanna and she is an art teacher in a secondary school oh 
pulling on a little bit of... Uh, well, the thing is, I think most um, authors pull on stuff that they know from the personal experience. It's just why you're able to write and create. So that's her, and she's about 26. She falls for one of her students, Josh, and Josh is a sixth former, and he's only got a couple more weeks to go once they do exams and things, and then he's going to leave. But he has a thing for her. Instead of waiting until he's finished school, they don't. However, while that's going on, she is being stalked by somebody, and we, the readers, know who the stalker is. He's called Ben, and we know who Ben is. So it's not a thriller. Part of me didn't want to make Ben... I know that stalkers do have huge issues, but I just wanted him to make make him slightly likeable at the beginning so you felt something for him. He wasn't just this evil person who was out to get this woman... I mean, there's a reasoning behind that, why everybody's a stalker, but I just wanted to explore a little bit about him. So he has some of his own chapters. And as the book goes through, things happen. There are a few tragedies that happen because of him stalking her and because he's so jealous of her being in love with this young lad. Do you know what? You know that story, though, when I was at school, it was around this time I left. I left in 1982, but the geography teacher... Uh, he an ex-student, they got together. I think she'd been an A-level student, and so... Yeah, I think it wasn't long after so he left the school and she, obviously she'd left the school. And She's fine. And in fact, in my one, it's not illegal that she goes out with Josh because he's 18, but it isn't correct because she's still his teacher. So there's that aspect of it. A lot of people, of course, said, is it based on you? Well, no. But you know that President Macron met his wife when he was at school and he was 14 and she's 20 years older than him. Oh, wow. No, I didn't. I, I knew she was 20 years older than him. So he met her at school. Was she a teacher then? Yeah, she was. And she was also the mother of one of his best friends. No way. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Oh, there's all sorts of stories to be told, all sorts of stories to be told. So how how was it then getting that book and that done and published and out there? How, how did that feel to you? I was just really proud of myself for doing it, to be honest, because I didn't think I'd ever write a novel. Yeah, I'm really chuffed with it and I'm getting some good feedback. So that's good. I was really pleased. So I am curious, though, because as I say, having written, I published my first book in 2002. 17 and I've just done a, a chapter in a book collaboration which for me was just like just da, 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 downloaded it sent it off but well to my editor because my editor sort of checked through things and like you were saying sort of highlights bits that needs to be added or taken away or too much whatever so I sent it over to them for their copywriter editor to sort of check but there wasn't much that needed sort of tweaking just needed to be sort of I think brought in line with all the other chapters for this multi-author project which we had a number on Amazon bestseller yay when I think about writing a novel because you you there's a different sort of structure to it so how did you go about that because like you said the word author didn't resonate with you specifically at the time but you are an author and you did do those books at school they were sort of as you say training manuals educational manuals you you've done the story your life story with Conrad which is awesome as well and I want how I need to know how that went as well but you know in terms of actually creating a work of fiction did you go on any sort of courses or training courses or did you just was it natural how did you go about sort of thinking and plotting and creating all these different sort of chapters and thoughts and characters I didn't go on a course I probably should have done but I didn't but I read a lot and as I say Reading other people's writing helps you recognise sort of mistakes that people make a lot in sort of layout, in use of grammar and things like that. So I have to have, because I've started my second novel now, but I have to have the plot in my head before I write the book. There are two types that 
writers talk about. There are people who are planners, and then there are people what they call pantsers, who do, you know, the seat of their pants sort of thing. They just go for it. I thought you said panthers then, so you meant panthers, <laughs> and not in a... <gasps> Yeah, but you see, I can't do that, and I'm, which is funny because I'm not a very organised person in some ways. I need to know where the book's going, and I need to know the plot. But that's like music, isn't it? Because there's a rhythm to it. There's a structure. If you think about, well, if you think about me, here's me talking to a music teacher. If you think about music. <laughs> But music has a structure, doesn't it? It has a sort of start, a middle and an end because you've, you've got that sort of... Yeah, you have your start, you have the middle and you have the end. And depending on who you talk, because there's all sorts of ways, forms of writing a book. But, you know, the one I like is that, you know, you have three events happen or, you know, accidents or whatever, three events, and then the final thing pulls it all together. And it's just trying to keep the reader's interest but not wearing them out with too many things all happening in one go. It's sort of making sure that your plot all ties up. So for me, to be able to just write without having thought of that in my head first, I just couldn't do that. You've probably heard people say that their characters take over. They do. So I have in my head the points in my novel, so I knew what my ending was going to be. I knew the major mishaps I'll say or you know the things the events that were going to take place then I had to sort of just get them through that there were times um, where yes your character suddenly goes slightly different and you find yourself writing something and you think oh that's going off in a bit of a different way but it, it's almost like you've just taken a bit of a detour on your route that you're going on it just works out but I mean from my what I'm doing now, I really have had to get it tied up in my head because if I didn't, there's bits that just wouldn't make sense and we couldn't. it wouldn't work. So I've had to get all of that done before. So is it a completely different novel or are you taking it, it taking the first the characters from the first one into the second no no it's completely different the first one finished and it wouldn't have worked to have a carry-on from that um i am taking perhaps one character across but she's secondary person in the first novel this next novel is still about love and romance but it's a bit of a cold case and it has ghosts as we foretold liz we can um talk forever <laughs> But how do people get in touch with you if they want to speak to you about books, publishing, mentoring, reading your book, or how do they, yeah, how do they contact you? I have got a website where you can email me from and it's got lots of information on there. So it's Liz McDermott and Liz is spelt L-I-S, not Z. And then McDermott is M-C-D-E-R-M-O-T-T. And so it's Liz McDermott, author, dot co dot uk and and i'm on amazon as well so you know you can just but if you go on my website you can find anything and they take you to different places thank you all for listening yeah and if you've enjoyed this episode please do rate review follow subscribe whatever you do from your platform so massive thank you again to liz and as you know where you can find a liz mcdermott author dot co dot uk whereas myself i had to think there i'm at sarahjnaylor.com if you want to find me <laughs> so Anyway, I say thank you again. It's great having you as my listeners. And until next time, lots of love. Take care. And we will be back in touch soon. Thanks for listening to the Harnessing Happiness podcast with Sarah J. Naylor. If you took value from the content, please follow the show on your podcast app. And to find out more about Sarah's ape mindset, visit sarahjnaylor.com. That's sarahjnaylor.com.